0: Good morning. Welcome to Grace. If y'all stand with us, we're going to sing a song we taught you a couple weeks ago. Um, It's a good one to wake up to, so you guys will sing this out with us.
1: Father, we gather, proclaiming your greatness, your fame that is over all the earth, and we thank you for the beauty of this world that you've made. We thank you for the wonder of being a part of your creation. We thank you that you made us. And Lord, we gather, not just proclaiming your greatness, but proclaiming that you made us for greatness. You made us to bear your image, to be brave good things, to be kind, to be loving, to be just, and all of us fall far short of your design. Lord, we come confessing not only that you are great, but that we have fallen short of of bearing your image, that we fail to love and to live the way you designed us to. Lord, we proclaim not only are you great, not only are you mighty, but you are merciful and you are gracious and you forgive us. And you came after us to bring us back to yourself, to restore us, to save us, not because of our greatness or our worthiness, but because of your love. And so we continue to worship you, not only in light of your greatness, but in light of your forgiveness and love for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for drawing us back to yourself. I pray that you would help us to continue to worship you with renewed hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. (laughs) Thank you very much, Mr. President.
0: Yeah. Three. You yeah. our eyes on you, God, to find our worth not in ourselves, but in your love for us. God, help us to stare hard at you and your word, God, and when we see ourselves, help us to see ourselves in light of who you are, God, and who you're making us. God, we thank you for this morning, God, thank you for bringing us together as a church God help us to love you more and to listen now as we hear your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. Good
1: morning. I kept trying to choke at the nine o'clock service, so I've got a little water just in case. I pass out or anything, I should be fine. Um if you will open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, we are finishing up Titus today. We've called this series Counterculture, and as we finish up this last chapter, we'll get kind of a summary of a lot of the things that Paul has said through the whole book. And uh, again, uh, taking that name up one more time for this last sermon, Counterculture. And as we've talked about it, we talked about how. What we're trying to set up is not a counterculture in the sense of being combative or being difficult or being a pain, you know, fight the power, that kind of thing, but an alternate, a beautiful, different way of life that God is helping us to grow here. And and that is the goal. And there's this theme of lies that showed up early on in the book of Titus, and we talked about how our culture, basically no matter what different variety, no matter what different tribe you come from, where you grew up, all human culture is based on that first lie in the garden, that we can do life on our own. And that was the first lie, and that's the, all cultures have been developed from that. And what we're trying to set up, uh, by God's grace, is a counterculture, a different culture, a different way of doing life that's an alternative to that. A beautiful way of doing life, a culture within a culture, a city within a, uh, within a city as the church, That is basing our life and basing our culture on the truth of God and who he is. Yes, we've rebelled against him, but he took that rebellion on himself. He placed the punishment for that on Jesus. And he gives us new life and he calls us back to himself. And life comes from being in relationship with him. Life doesn't come, culture doesn't come from doing it on our own. Uh, That's the lie that was first believed by Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent said, surely you're not going to die. You you can do this. You don't really need God. He doesn't doesn't want you to be your own God. Well, that's true. He didn't want us to become our own gods because he knew it would kill us. And it continues to kill us as we try to to do things our way. Because he loves us, as we just read. And this theme really, this theme is the theme of the whole Bible. And we're talking about the one story that makes up all the other 66 books in the Bible. The one story of a God who loves us. Who says, you can't do life on your own. I'm going to save you out of that. We see it in Matthew 5 when Jesus comes to the religious leaders and he says, You think you can do life on your own as a religious person. Well, that's not enough. Your religion is not enough. You can't do it yourself. You can't keep the laws well enough. And Jesus tells them in Matthew 5 that blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have to come to God with a certain desperateness. You have to realize that you're at the end of your own rope and you can't do it on your own. That you need God. To save you. Jesus says that's where it starts. This theme is picked up in Galatians 5 where Paul contrasts living by the Spirit and living by the flesh. Again, if we follow the lie of the serpent, we want to live by our own strength. We want to live by our flesh, our bodies. We can do it. I can do this on my own. But Paul says, no, there's a contrast. And that true fruit in life, true culture is born out in the, the fruit of the Spirit. Walking in dependence on God's Holy Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And these things grow out of dependence on God, not independence and depending on our own flesh. You see that distinction? And then we see it again in John 1 and John 3, uh, the theme of being born again. But it's not enough to be born of the flesh. We've all been born of the flesh, but we need to be born of the Spirit. In John 1 it says, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, one of the teachers of the Jews, and he says, don't you understand, you have to be born again. It's not enough to just be born naturally, you have to be born supernaturally from above. And then even James picks this up. We think of James as the one that's kind of emphasizing works and not so much grace and not so much being born from above, but even James emphasizes it in James chapter 1. He says that sin gives birth to death, but that all good gifts come from above and we need to weep and mourn and wail and call on God to give us birth from, a, um, from above. He talks about specifically that, that we are born out of God's will when we have this new birth. And so we see this theme really in, in every book of the Bible. I'm just trying to kind of give you some, some highlights here. And we pack, pick it up in Matthew, or in Matthew 13 with kind of the analogy that I want to use throughout the day as we look at Titus 3. In Matthew 13, there's just one little verse that talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And it's this tiny little seed that you can't even see, but then it grows into this huge tree, this shrub that that birds can come and nest in. And and that's the way it should work in our life. It's this invisible, small little thing, this thing that we call the gospel, this thing that we call the good news of of a God who loves us, who who saves us. and, And that little tiny seed then grows and creates something beautiful. And that's what the culture is. That's what the counterculture is that we're trying to create. That's what we're trying to cultivate. That's what we're trying to grow. So with with all that in mind, with that context of of the theme of the whole Bible, let's read Titus chapter 3 and see what he says there. Titus chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, there's some black ones under the chairs, and we're on page 999 in those Bibles. So you can flip open to that one. That's a little easy to remember, 999. And if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take that as well. You can keep that. So Titus chapter 3, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is the kind of culture we are to create. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, we were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on these things. Insist on these truths so that people will do good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. (coughs) Verse 9 says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray and ask God to uh, teach us out of that today. Father, we ask for you to teach us, we ask for you to, to make your word clear, to help us to understand it, to receive it, and Lord, we pray that we would be a culture that, that is transformative, that we are born from above, that we would bear fruit in our lives, um, that we would be gracious all around us, that you would help us to walk in dependence on you and not in dependence on our own strength. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I wanted to show you a picture of a different kind of culture. We usually think of culture as like all of life, right? All that humans create art and music and traditions and how we do life together. And we kind of use that term broadly when we talk about creating a counterculture, a culture based on Jesus and based on the gospel. Um, but there's a very specific biological term, culture, too, right? Any of you biology majors or scientists, any of you ever had your throat swabbed for, for strep throat? You ever had that? Well, they say we're going to run a culture, right? So there's this biological term for culture. I did a science project in fifth grade, actually one second place. Thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> what we did was we got petri dishes. And this is how scientists, at least that's what I was told. I'm not really a scientist. But this is how scientists grow culture uh, germs, bacteria. Our science project was called the effects of chemicals on bacterial growth. So what we did was we spit in a petri dish which is like the little garden of bacteria, and we just figured, I think I was the one that did it, we figured I probably had more bacteria than my friends. We were doing it together as a group project. Spit into the Petri dish, and then we added different chemicals to it to see what grew and what didn't grow. We were trying to cultivate bacteria. That's what they do when they swab your throat. They're trying to grow the bacteria and see, see if there's enough of it in there to count it or see it or however that works so that they know if you have that germ or not. Well, scientists do this all the time. And, and this picks up that image, again, of, of trying to grow something from tiny little seeds. It might be spores if it's a, a fungus, or it might be uh, whatever it is the bacteria grows out of, something tiny and microscopic. But, but you, know, you, you start with these tiny little cells or these tiny little seeds or these tiny little spores, and then they multiply, and then they grow, and then they begin to bear fruit. It begins to show itself. Something happens. You start off with a petri dish with this weird kind of clear gelatin, And you can't see anything. It's just the stuff that bacteria grows in. And, you you know, I spit in it. I couldn't see any bacteria in my spit. Nothing seemed to be there. But after a while, it begins to grow. Well, the gospel, we're not trying to grow bacteria, right? We're not trying to grow fungus. But Jesus actually uses a similar analogy in Matthew 13. When he says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Yeast is a fungus that we mix into our bread so it can multiply. Or we mix it into our beer so that it can ferment. It's It's this small little germ thing, this this fungus that grows and multiplies. So Jesus kind of does the same thing and says that's how the kingdom culture should work. This tiny little seed, this insignificant idea that yet, though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that that would take root in people's hearts. And that that would begin to create people who do their art for the glory of God. It would begin to create soldiers who obey and do their job for the glory of God. It would begin to create teachers who see their calling is a calling from God and not just a way to get a paycheck. It would begin to create people who would redeem culture in every corner, in every crack, that we would begin to be different, that we would have a transformative effect on society because of the gospel, because of what God has done for us. And and that's what Paul continues to tell Titus, that that's how it works, that the gospel comes into our heart and then it bears fruit. It may be invisible, it may be small, it may seem insignificant at first, like a tiny little seed, like a tiny little germ, but then it grows, it takes root, it multiplies. And, and that's what we see here in Titus chapter 3. The first thing that I want to look at is, what is the fruit that we're trying to grow? What, what does it actually look like then on the outside? In these first three verses, Paul explains, well, this is the fruit. This is the out, outside exterior stuff that you can see when this gospel is taking root in people's hearts. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. When we played football, our coaches would say, "Ready, ready," and we'd like get down in the fighting position, right? Ready to hit somebody. But that's that's how we have to be in the spiritual life. Not ready to hit someone, but ready, ready to do any good work. Always alert, always ready, always prepared. And he says that we should be submissive to rulers and authorities. We should look a certain way. There there should be a culture. Now, now Christianity is unique in that it infiltrates every culture and every tribe and every people group in the world, and so it takes on different expressions. It can look like different things. Christians in Africa don't dress the way you're dressed right now. Christians 100 years ago in America don't dress the way that you look right now. Don't listen to the same kinds of music. And so there's, there's cultural expressions that are different, right? There's different flavors. There's different types. There's different looks that we may have as Christians, But there are universal principles that all Christians should fulfill. We should always be ready to do every good work. We should always be obedient. We should always be submissive to the rulers and authorities in charge. We should bring peace and grace and blessing to whatever city, whatever organization we've entered into. We should make their lives better. Anybody that you work for, any mayor, any leader, any governor, you should make their life better. You should make the city you live in better. You should make the country that you live in better. You should make the school that you participate in better. Better. We're there to bring blessing. That's the call that God has put on our life. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. And then he starts generalizing a little more. He starts going to how you treat just everybody. Not just being obedient to the rulers and the people in, that are in charge, people that are officers or have some kind of title, but you should just be kind to everyone. He says in verse 2, speak evil of no one. Don't go around speaking evil of people. Don't, don't speak bad things. Don't cause problems. Don't gossip. He says, avoid quarreling. That means fighting, for those of you that don't know this ancient language here. Avoid fighting. Don't stir up problems, but be peaceful. He says, be gentle instead. Instead of fighting, instead of quarreling, be gentle. And show perfect courtesy toward all people. I think in the NIV it says kindness, right? It's, it's, it's be nice, right? Christians should be known for being nice. Again, we're setting up a counterculture, we're setting up a city within a city, a culture within a culture, and it shouldn't be known for being combative, and being difficult, and being hard to get along with. I've heard often, uh, it's spoken, that, that a good barometer for what kind of impact your church is having in the community is if, if your church just disappeared, with the leaders of your community caring. How would they feel if we just, if we just disappeared, if we evaporated? How, how would all of our businesses that we belong to, how would the jobs, the units that, that you're a soldier with, how, how would all those organizations that you're a part of feel if, if all of us just disappeared, if we were gone? If we just said, hey, we're all just moving to another town, 500 people packed up and left, what, what would people think? Would they miss us? Is, is this church or is the church in general and society known for bringing blessing and goodness to every organization, to the schools businesses that you work for? That's a good question to ask. We see again, we talked about this earlier, Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is, is love and joy and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and, and all of these things. This and peace, it, it's, it's these attitudes of the heart, it's this way that you interact with people that's different. People should see something countercultural in us, but it should be joy and, and hope and kindness and good things. We should bring blessing to our community. And so I just want to ask you, are, are you doing that? And what organizations do you belong to? In those organizations, do you submit to those in charge? And do you you lift them up? Do you help them? Do you bless them? Do you bring blessing to your neighborhoods, to your communities, to your schools, to the different places that you're involved in? I think that's a question that every Christian needs to ask because that's that's where people see the fruit of the gospel. That's where they see it. It's this little idea that rests inside of us, but it, it comes out and it multiplies and it grows out and it looks like something. The next thing that we see are countercultural, oh, there's a picture of fruit. That's nice. <laughs> the next thing we look at is countercultural seeds. What are, what are the seeds that, that are planted? Again, we've talked about um, spores for yeast, right, or, or the little tiny mustard seed. I've got a, got a picture here of, of seeds. Jesus talks about comparing himself to a, to a seed of wheat, you know, that has to die and fall into the ground before it gives birth to new life. And the idea is that the gospel is that little seed, it's that little spore, it's that tiny little idea that takes root in our hearts and then, and then takes hold and multiplies. It transforms us and transforms those around us. That's what the seed is. The seed is the gospel. In verses 4 through 9, he kind of uh, goes off on this and, and gives you a lot of details. He gives really like all the big theological words for the gospel, like all in one little section of a few verses. So we're going to try to kind of zip through this and look at the different ideas that are portrayed here. He says in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Johnny did a great job explaining this word last week, this word appear. It's like this word of some hero just bursting in on the sea and appearing and changing everything, rescuing us. He says this goodness, this loving kindness of God appeared. And blew us all away in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ coming into our life. And it says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his mercy. His inclination towards us to withhold his wrath. And again, Johnny, last week explained that that mercy is, is withholding the punishment that we deserve, right? And it doesn't just stop here. We don't just get mercy, but he says, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration or new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So He actually comes in and gives us this new birth, like John talks about, like Galatians talks about, or like James talks about, being born from above, being born by the Holy Spirit. He gives us new life. He implants new life into us and then He begins renewing us by the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing process. It's not just a magical thing and all of a sudden we're perfect, right? It's an ongoing process, but that new life is now implanted in us and it begins to multiply and it begins to grow and it begins to transform our life. It begins to come out in different ways, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is where we see that distinction. It starts off with just mercy, withholding his wrath, with that that inclination, that loving inclination towards us to be merciful. Then extends to grace. He doesn't just pay our debt, but he gives us billions and billions into our account. He, he doesn't just Uh, take the debt away, but he also credits the account, is the language that Romans says. He reckons this to our account, or he counts this to our account. He gives us his righteousness. This word in verse 7 says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Literally, we are made righteous. Justified means made righteous, made just. Uh, In English, we use the word just and we use the word righteous and flip it back and forth, kind of whatever feels right, you know, whatever sounds better in English. Because both of those words kind of have a limit to them. We can't say righteous eyes, you can't say he righteousized us. That wouldn't really make sense. We say he justified us, he made us righteous, because it'd be too clunky to say made us righteous, but those are the same words in the Greek. So read your whole New Testament every time you see just and justified, every time you see righteous and righteousness. That's the same word. He, He gives us His righteousness. We don't have a righteousness of our own. We are not just on our own. He gives us His goodness. So he withholds his wrath. He pours his wrath out on Jesus. Jesus is punished for us. And then he gives us Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' perfection. His perfect life. That Jesus lived as the man that we should all be. As the perfect Israelite. The Israelite that measured up when none of the other Israelites did. The human, the new Adam that measured up when none of the other humans did. We get that righteousness as a gift. That's given to us. We're made righteous. We're justified by his grace. It's a gift. We become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That, that's the gospel. That's the good news. When we say gospel, it means good news. This is the counter message. This is the new message that we proclaim, that we receive, the hope that we have in who God is and what he's done for us. And it runs counter to the lie that says oh, you don't really need God. He's not really looking out for your best interests. You can do life on your own. You can figure out your own way to make it work. That, that's the message we've all been taught. No matter what religion you belong to, no matter what culture you've grown up in, that, that's what we know. And it comes out in different forms, in a million different ways, that, that we can do it, that we're strong enough. And God says, no, I, I love you too much to just leave you to die in your independence, in your suicidal independence. But I'm going to come after you, I'm going to pursue you and woo you to myself. I'm going to love you and show you my love. And then in verse 8 he says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. I, mean, I mean, so Stress these things. Insist on these things. Teach this over and over again. This should be the cornerstone of any church. Any church should be a people gathered around the reality that God gives us hope in Jesus. That He's our only hope. That He is our salvation. That's by definition what church is. It's people called out to God. It's people called to Him. It's, it's an assembly of people that belong to God and are are being saved and transformed by His power in their lives. So says, The saying is trustworthy. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful, again, to devote themselves to good works. He said in the previous section, Be ready to do any good work. Here he says, Devote yourselves to good works. And the way you do that is by stressing grace. Those things always go together. Christians throughout the years have said, Well, I'm, I'm interested in good works. And other people say, Well, I'm interested in Grace. The only way you get to good works as a human being is by understanding God's grace. That's the only way you can get there. Jesus proved again and again with his clashes with the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders of his day that they thought they were perfect. They thought they were doing all these good things. They were saying, look at us. We're good and those bad people over there, they're a bunch of sinners. Jesus said, no, you're not getting it. Apart from grace, apart from realizing that you can't do it on your own, you'll never truly do good works. You start to substitute these, these little smaller, lesser good works. And you'll skip the big things like love and justice and mercy. And you'll get caught up in your own little religion, your own little self-help routine and program. Saying, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And look at me. Look at all these things I do. Those bad people over there. Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. All of us are bad. All of us are broken. All of us are sinners. We all need God to save us. The question I have for you this morning out of this section is, is, do you realize that you need this? A lot of you have come here for months. You've heard me talk about this in different ways. You know, we use different pictures. We use different words. We use different analogies to try to help you understand that you can't do life on your own. And that the Christian message at its core is that we need God to save us. And that he sent Jesus to do that. That Jesus not only took the punishment on himself, but he gives us as a free gift his righteousness. <coughs> righteousness that we can accept by faith. And I want to challenge you this morning. Some of you have never made that personal, you've never accepted that for yourself. And the Bible says it's, it's just those who believe. It's simply trust. The word believe, we, we think, I think, in our language a lot of times, mental assent, like it's some abstract idea up there. Really, the word means trust. Do you trust this? Do you trust God? Are you continuing to keep him at arm's length and say, I'm safer if I do things on my own. It's better if I I take care of myself. Some of you need to come to that point to trust him for the first time. Your heart may be changed right now, this morning. Your mind may be being turned around. If that's the case for you, if you are seeing him as trustworthy for the first time, if you're seeing that, wow, he, he loves me. I can't do it on my own, and I can trust in him to save me. If that's you, I would love for you to share that with me. Maybe a friend brought you this morning. Maybe you've been coming here for years and you've never really trusted that for yourself. Tell that to someone. Talk to someone about it. Because what that does is then then you're accountable to someone else. Then it's out in the open. And then you can begin to grow in that. Then you begin to go deeper in that reality and begin to grow with others in your faith. Begin to devote yourself to good works based on what God has done for you. The last thing I want us to look at is... Kind of a mouthful. Countercultural cultivation. I was trying to think of a word. I was like, what's a word for gardening or planting? Or, I was like, hey, cultivation. It's already in there. Countercultural culturing. So we're going we're gonna to use that word to talk about the idea of, of being strategic about growing this. Right? When Jesus talks about the kingdom and the yeast analogy, he says the kingdom is like yeast. And he, he doesn't just leave it. It's like yeast. There you go. He says the kingdom is like yeast that, that somebody works into the dough so that it can raise the whole thing, so that it can work its way all through the dough. There's a certain strategery about it, right? We like that word. That's kind of a new word of the 21st century. There's a certain, there's a certain strategy involved where, where you pursue these things, where you try to cultivate this life. And we talk about missionaries who go on purpose to some other place, people they don't know, and say, hey, I want to share this good news. I want to plant these seeds in your culture so that then... This fruit can be born, can grow in your culture as well. Well, it's easy to think about that with other cultures, but we're called on to do that here in our culture also. And we're called to be strategic. We're called to cultivate these things. We're called to um, stop the spread of the bad news and grow and cultivate and nurture the spread of the good news. There's kind of a transition between the sections. In verse 9... And 10, where he says, "Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless." <clears throat> yep, it's going to be time for the water now. So he's saying, avoid, avoid these things, these controversies, these genealogies. He 's setting up a contrast, right? Stress the good, stress the truth of the gospel. There's Irish in my water. Sorry. Okay. I took longer than I thought it would. So he's saying avoid these controversies. Avoid these arguments over the law. Avoid these, these dissensions and genealogy lists. There's a lot of people that like to come to the Bible and make the Bible all about the periphery, right? Make the Bible all about all these weird things we don't understand and then get into a bunch of arguments and debates out over it. It's, I mean, the book is thousands of years old. There's a lot to it. And I encourage you to, to grow in, in studying and trying to understand all of it, but don't, don't devote all your time to that. Do you understand? You've got to have the proper, the proper order of there's the main things and then these peripheral things. And it's fine to study the peripheral things and seek understanding. But, but this is where people take the peripheral things and then they run off on rabbit trails and then they, think, they start saying, well, it's all about this and it's all about that. And they argue about genealogy lists and they argue about the law, and they argue about all these other things and myths and made-up stuff that that Paul referenced earlier in the book. He says, no, don't, don't get caught up in that stuff, but stress the main things of a God who actually justifies us by His grace. That is the main story of the Bible. Stress that. Focus on that. When you teach the Bible, teach through it and understand who God is and what He's done for us by grace. Verse 10 says, as for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. This word, a person who stirs up division, this is in Greek the word heretic, uh, heretikos. It's, this word you've, probably, word you've probably used before, a heretic is like someone who's, who doesn't believe or is outside the church. Have y'all ever heard that word before? Uh, so the word has taken on that meaning of a false teacher, but literally it means a, a divider. It means someone who's teaching false things and trying to divide people from each other and divide people from, from Jesus and focusing on Him and trying to get caught up in these sideline issues, these little issues, these debates and these things that you can argue about. And Paul says here to Titus, warn that guy. He says, warn him once and then twice and then having nothing more to do with him. And I think there's an important lesson in here when we think about being strategic and cultivating the good life in the church. When we think about cultivating the good life in the church... There's both planting the good stuff and nurturing it, and then there's also weeding, right? And here he's saying sometimes you're going to have to pull weeds. Sometimes you're going to have to pull the bad stuff out of your culture. And there's this picture I found of a dandelion. Any of you pulled dandelions? Any of you ever done that? Yeah, some of you? The rest of you are evil. You've never pulled dandelions That's terrible. You just let them grow and take over your yard? I can't believe that. You should feel very guilty about that. No, I'm just kidding. But but you, you try to pull the weeds out, right? If you've already got the bulb with the little <laughs> fluffy stuff on it, it's kind of too late then because now it's spreading, and now you've got 15 more to pull, right? Um, so you're trying to systematically pull those as you're watering, as you're fertilizing, as you're helping the good stuff grow in your yard. And Paul kind of gives that same thing here. He says... Warn the divisive man, and then if he keeps on going with this, then, then leave him alone. So says, warn him once, and then twice, and then have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. This also sets up this interesting um, line that we walk on as a church. We're always going to be an open culture, right? Be- because people like this are going to work their way in. Ch- churches can, can go to two extremes. They can go to absolute openness where anyone can teach anything. Right, Or churches can go to the other kind of extreme, this kind of super uh, hyper doctrinal extreme where you've got to have a Ph.D. in the doctrine of our denomination before you can lead a, a five-year-old Sunday school class. Right, And we want to we avoid those two extremes. I mean, what's going to happen is we're going to say, hey, are you in general agreement with our doctrine? Here's our constitution. This is the things we teach here. This is what we want you to teach. People are going to come in. And then you know what? There's going to be some people that start teaching this stuff. There's going to be some people that start being divisive, and then we need to warn them and say, that's, that's really not what we need to be teaching. We don't need to do that here. Um, and then we can warn them again, and then after that, we say, okay, sorry, you can't teach anymore. We can't let you propagate this. doesn't mean we're going to kill them. It doesn't mean we're going to chase them out of town. It just means, hey, this is, this is an open yet still kind of closed culture here. There, there are some things that are okay and some things that are not. I mean, If you want to have a religious debate club, we can go do that. If you want to have you know, a service organization, we can do that. But this is a church, and as we said, by definition, the church is devoted to the truth of Jesus and, and who he is. And so we need to have kind of open arms. People are coming in. We accept new people. We let lots of different people teach and lead groups. But we also have a certain closeness to us where we maintain that it's all about Jesus. We're going to make him... The main thing, and not apologize for that, and again, be gracious about that. Not speak evil of anyone, as it said in those beginning verses. Not, not to be combative about it, but just to be practical and say, "Yeah, I'm sorry. That's that's not what we do here. You're going to have to find another place to do that." I want to uh, challenge us with verses three or verses twelve through fifteen here at the very end. He, he says to, to warn the divisive people, and then he starts saying, "Okay, and, and encourage, nurture, and cultivate these people that are helpful." And he gives some specific names here. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So again, Paul is being strategic. He's trying to cultivate the life of the church. He's sending a replacement for Titus because he needs Titus to come and help him because he's hurting and he needs help. And so you see different people going different places to shepherd, to pastor, to minister to different needs at different times. And we see that in churches as well. We have... Uh, different seasons of life just based on the army moving people in and out of the life of this church and we have different people lead different groups and different people involved in different things Uh, we'll have different staff at different times we'll have different uh, deacons and elders and and part of the strategy is trying to find the right people for the right time to to feed and nurture god's word to to push that and and pour that and sow those seeds into the life of the church and we see that here too that these are real people and that the, these weren't just like detached, non-historical figures, but these were real people. I mean, Paul was real. Titus was real. He's saying, hey, I'm sending either this guy or this guy. I haven't really decided yet. It's either going to be Artemis or Tychicus. One of them's going to come replace you. Then you're going to come help me. In verse 13, he says, also do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing. These other missionaries that are going out to other, to other cities... They're going to be sent to Crete for a while. They're going to stay there. He says, make sure you give them what they need. Again, we we understand this in our kind of modern world. We have missionaries we support and we give them gifts. And we say, here you go. This is what you need to to go off to Azerbaijan or to go off to uh, the Middle East or to go off to Africa or wherever you may be going. Here's, Here's the stuff we'll supply you, we'll encourage you, we'll prop you up and help you do these works. Verse 14 says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Once again, that theme, the third time in this section. Let our people devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. The goal is that we would be fruitful, that we would produce good fruit. And so we've seen it in general. It talks about getting along in society, being submissive, being kind to everyone, being gracious, basing our lives on the truth of the gospel. And then even gets down to these very specific strategic <laughs> needs of... We need to cultivate the life and the leadership of these particular people they are going here on these certain missions. Help them make sure their basic needs are met. But again, he he keeps tying it back to that basic principle. That because of the good work that God has done for us, we should be a people of good works. That should grow out of our life. That should be cultivated in the life of this church. We should have a transformative effect on our culture, on our society. And I want to ask you, just as we conclude, what, what are the good works that God has called you to? What are the good works that God has called you to? What is your calling? How has he gifted you? Romans 12 lists all these different kinds of gifts that people have in churches. And Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, these other chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, they they talk about differing gifts, that that we all have different gifts in the body of Christ. We're all like different members, like one person's a hand and another person's an eye and someone else is an ear. And different people are wired different ways. What are your gifts? And not only what are your gifts, but where has God placed you? Because he's put you in strategic places to have an impact, to cultivate life where you are. He sent you there on purpose. We quoted this a couple of weeks ago. Acts 17 says God God appoints the boundaries of people. He he appoints the dwelling places, where they're going to live, the times that they're going to live in. And he does that for his purposes. He sent you. Even if you've never been to Africa, you are a missionary. God has sent you where you are, to your house, to your job. How are you representing Christ? How are you spreading this culture of the gospel wherever you go? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we pray that you would use us. That even though we all feel very very tiny and very insignificant, we know that you can use us to do great things like a little tiny seed that grows into a great tree. Lord, I pray that your gospel would bear fruit in our lives, that we would uh, every day grow more deeply in the reality that you are a God of grace. That out of your mercy and love for us, you withhold your wrath and poured that out on Jesus. And you gave us his righteousness. We thank you for adopting us. We thank you for making us heirs of eternal life. We have an inheritance as sons and daughters of the king. We thank you that we look forward to our best life in the future with you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to spend the life you've given us now for you. We pray in Jesus' name.